Hello and welcome back to the new Discourses podcast. We're doing a little series to read through Gail Rubin's 1984 essay called Thinking Sex, Notes for a Radical Theory of the Politics of Sexuality. The reason we're reading through this is because it's the first queer theory paper. So we've spent a lot of time talking about critical race theory. Everybody now is very aware of so-called gender ideology, trans ideology, transgenderism, has lots of names. I like gender Marxism and queer Marxism, frankly. Some of us are becoming familiar and comfortable with the words queer theory. And so it's good to look at the roots. And so in the previous episode of the podcast and of the series, we read the first a little more than a third of this essay, um, and we saw the roots of queer theory. The roots of queer theory include Gail Rubin giving kind of peculiar defenses for things like child pornography. It's an odd thing to defend. Communism, yet another odd thing to defend in a paper about a radical politics of sexuality. Um, Man-boy love, or uh, as she calls it, cross-generational encounters, which we also uncovered is very clearly by the way that she says that people treat them is very clearly a euphemism for pedophilia. Because even where you have like a Hugh Hefner character with his 20-year-old bunnies as in his 80s, you don't get the level of revulsion that she indicates. And certainly not where you would have like a 40 or 50-year-old cross-generationally meeting up with a 20-something. People might think it's inappropriate. People might even think it's gross. But what you don't have is the kind of reaction that she describes, which involves words like horror. Um, I'll see if I can find that again very quickly, where she says that. It's trying to scroll up. Uh, unmodulated horrors, incapable of involving affection, love, free choice, kindness, or transcendence. Nobody believes that there is a 24-year-old woman or man, a 24-year-old person who is incapable of affection, love, and free choice in entering relationships, say, with a 50-year-old. That's intergenerational or cross-generational. So we do realize that we have unmodulated horrors incapable of involving free choice, certainly, when we're talking about an adult and a child. So it's very clear what Gail Rubin is defending. We also see a lot of defenses of kink, and we're going to hear a lot more of that, I think, as we go through this paper. And we're going to end up, uh, like I said at the end of the last episode, breaking this into three episodes because um, it's longer than I thought it would be. And um, this one's actually going to be a little bit short, but as we go further, we're also going to see that what she's doing is kind of the typical thing. We saw this with the birth of intersectionality, which is also kind of predicted here or approached here. She's kind of talking about race and sex and other identity factors in addition to talking about sex and gender. Well, really mostly sex and sexuality. So intersectionality had this thing to it where um, what you kind of had going on was uh, how do you twist the ratchet on feminists, right? It was how do we bring race to the feminist movement and call it white feminism and force them to do our bidding? How do we bring feminism into the black liberation movement or the black nationalist movement and get them to come along into this intersectional model? Well, we see the same kind of thing here where queer theory is going to basically come after feminism. It's not quite the same thing, but essentially what it is is it's this kind of these internecine conflicts within feminism in the 1980s that are going to bend 
feminism in the direction that we've talked about on several podcasts and several things now, which is that feminism has been used. It hit its limit in some sense of utility, and now it's being discarded in favor of queer theory, which takes social constructivism a step further. If you want a quick summary, I've done a few podcasts on this topic, but one was titled The Woke Slope is Always Slippery. The argument is actually pretty simple. It's that if you're in a social constructivist universe and you say gender is a social construct and then you get to sex, which if you're talking about issues of sexuality, you eventually will. So gender, sex, and sexuality are kind of intertwined. When you get to sex, if you try to say no, sex is biologically real, all it takes is one person, say Judith Butler, who later in the decade uh, did exactly this, to come along and say, well, maybe sex is socially constructed too. And if you say no, it's not, it's biological, bada bing, bada boom, you're a turf, you're a conservative, you're a counter-revolutionary, you are part of the problem. And so... There is no way to stop the slope from slipping from gender as a social construct to sex as a social construct to what we're dealing with now, which is literally people saying things like sex and gender can be things that aren't even sexes or genders, like animals or trees or cake or abstract concepts or nebulas or space or energy itself. And there's absolutely nothing you can do to stop that within a social constructivist frame that doesn't believe that reality is real, as we've also talked about, but that believes that reality is actually a construct of social relations that are put forth by the powerful in order to constrain people. And so what queer theory did was it looked at the idea that some stuff is normal, that men and women are men and women, that's normal. And it says, well, that constrains the subjectivity of people who don't feel like that works for them, the abnormal, the queer. And it creates a uh, positive discourse of resistance and, and a site of an anchor for subjectivity in queer politics as a form of Marxist revolutionary politics to overthrow a system that is created by the normal to benefit the normal. And we see exactly what queer theory is. And we're going through this paper uh, to kind of show. So this is 84, to show where it comes from, I should say. But this is 1984, when this paper was written by Gail Rubin. There's an article from 2016 somebody sent me uh, this morning, as I'm recording this, uh, on Twitter. We actually used the ideas in this article. I want to kind of, not kind of, I just want to read through this. Um, it's in whatever IDS News is, Academics and Research. I don't actually even know what that is or care. Um but the title is Speaker Discusses White Male Sexuality. This came out in 2016. We used exactly these ideas, as it turns out, in the Grievance Studies Affair. Peter Bogosian, Helen Pluckrose, and I wrote a paper that we affectionately called Dildos because we suggested that straight men, particularly straight white men, could overcome their transphobia, and a new term we coined at, with the help of a peer reviewer, trans hysteria, by practicing. In other words, by inserting things into their butts. And where we kind of got this idea was thinking through these concepts we're going to hear, but this is where queer theory went between 1984 and 2016 in those 32 years. The title is Speaker Discusses White Male Sexuality. And I'll just read through this article, which was written by Bailey Klein, like I said, in November of 2016. Practicing homosexuality is a normal, if not vital, part of demonstrating masculinity for straight white males, said Jane Ward, 
professor of gender and sexuality studies at the University of California, Riverside. So in case you missed it, this is where queer theory goes. The stuff that Gail Rubin is setting up in this paper goes here. Practicing, let me say this clearly so you don't lose track because it's obvious nonsense. Practicing homosexuality is a normal, if not vital, part of demonstrating masculinity for straight white males, said Jane Ward, professor of gender gender and sexuality studies at the University of California, Riverside. Practicing homosexual is a normal, if not vital, part of demonstrating masculinity for straight white males. Ward visited IU on Thursday, I assume this is Indiana University, but I don't know for sure, to talk about the ideas covered in her book, Not Gay, Sex Between Straight White Men. This was actually, believe it or not, when we were doing the Grievance Studies Affair and we were writing that paper about transphobia, uh, this is actually a vein of literature that I read rather extensively, that there are lots and lots and lots of claims by these sexualities studies professors who are social constructivists, who therefore believe that sex and sexuality are socially constructed, who therefore believe that you can change your sex and sexuality according to your whims, which sounds an awful lot like a form of conversion therapy, because that's what queer theory is offering. I read a lot of this stuff, and this is huge in the literature, in so-called sexuality studies, which is completely based in queer theory. So the book is Not Gay, Sex Between Straight White Men. And specifically, Ward's book, specifically surrounding how homosexuality impacts straight white men. Quote, I'm very interested in complicating our understanding of heterosexuality because heterosexuality and queerness are mutually constituted, Ward said. What in the world does that mean? Heterosexuality and queerness are mutually constituted. Well, if we didn't make heterosexuality normal, if we didn't consider it normal, if it wasn't normal, then being queer to that normal thing wouldn't exist. If we didn't think of heterosexuality at all, or consider it to be a normal state of affairs, then we couldn't call queerness abnormal. So they exist together. So, as the queer theorists want to do, they want to complicate our understanding of heterosexuality, literally to include homosexuality, while still being heterosexual, so that the words mean less. Because then, eventually, they'll mean little or nothing. When they mean little or nothing, the discursive terrain, as these people would put it, in which these ideas are created and socially enforced, will dissolve and then you won't have the oppression created by a concept of a special kind of property called being normal because you won't have any enforcement mechanisms because you won't have any boundaries between the categories. Ward talked about how the ideas of queerness and normativity have changed in the past years. In the 90s, she said, it was normativity that was being analyzed. Quote, queerness became almost untethered from homosexual sex practices. So, Gail Rubin's writing this in 1984. Let's not lose Gail Rubin here. And by the 1990s, queerness became almost untethered from homosexual sex practices. And instead, what did I say, by the way, about what queerness is? In queer theory, queer Marxism. I said, let me remind you before I finish the sentence, 
I said that queer theory is a Marxist theory where there's a special kind of property called normalcy, and what has to be done is that in keeping with the Communist Manifesto, Chapter 2 and elsewhere, as Marx said, communism can be summarized in a single sentence, abolition of private property. In other words, in this case, queer theory can be, or queer Marxism can be summarized in a single sentence, abolition of the concept of normal. Abolition of the normal. Queerness became almost untethered from homosexual. Oops, sorry. No, that's right. Queerness became almost untethered from homosexual sex practices, and instead, queerness became defined as resistance to regimes of the normal, Ward said. And instead, following Gail Rubin's complications of sex and sexuality, her thinking sex, within less than a decade, queerness became defined not in terms of homosexual sex practices, queerness became defined as resistance to regimes of the normal. We did not exaggerate in cynical theories. I have not exaggerated in any podcast that I've given. Queer theory means, in her own words, became defined as a Marxist theory of resistance to regimes of the normal. Regimes set up by the idea of normalcy itself, constituted as a special form of property that some people have access to, other people are excluded from, and therefore you have a site of oppression that requires a consciousness-raising theory that will create an awakened proletariat, if you will, a queer proletariat that will try to overthrow the existing regime, which is the regime of the normal. It is a war on the normal, which is the first thing we say in the queer theory chapter of Cynical Theories in Chapter 4, which we wrote back in 2019. Uh, it came out in the summer of 2020, but the book was actually due on the last day of August 2019, so we were way ahead of the curve writing that one. Specifically, Ward discussed different ways in which straight white males will participate in homosexual activity and consider it hazing, such as in the military or in fraternities. Some of these events she described included fraternity elephant walks and the navies crossing the line, both of which involve males touching one another's genitals. I've been told by people in the Navy, after making fun of this on Twitter, that that's not at all what crossing the line actually is, but that won't stop a queer theorist. Ward said at first she was repelled by these activities. Ha! Huh, I have the correct moral positioning. I am a good person. I was repelled. At the same time, though... She said she was impressed by the imagination these men had to create such scenarios. Quote, as these young men groped one another, they believed they were doing something productive, something fundamentally heterosexual, masculine, and white, Ward said. That's insane. And white? That's insane. She used different examples of ads on Craigslist made by straight white males looking for sex with other straight white males. Interviews done by 100 of these men, Ward said, revealed around 50% also identified as heterosexual in the interviews. I'm telling you, there were books about this when I was going for that paper. I wish I could remember what some of these are. The only thing I can remember is a rather hilarious paper by a guy named Brian Pronger from the 90s. It was about football secretly letting straight men play out their gay fantasies, and it was titled Out of My End Zone. Um, and it basically impugned all of team sports as ways for straight men to, to play out homosexual fantasy, uh, even though they're not actually homosexual. But there was all these books, all these papers talking about um, basically straight men having sex with one another and then defending the territory of their straightness. And 
then they go into the whole idea of the one drop rule. If you've had gay sex once, it makes you gay, blah, blah, blah. And that's where homo hysteria comes from. And homo hysteria leads into this idea that we created of trans hysteria, that if you cross-dress or whatever, or even so much as you know, put something in your anus, then you're automatically dipping into trans land. And that causes a hysteria that drives people crazy and makes them go away from it. And so men are actually terrified of becoming gay or becoming trans by indulging anything associated with gayness and transness. That's what the paper was about. And we said that if men just practice that, that it would be okay, they could overcome it. And it was like, really, this is, this was called an important contribution to knowledge by a peer reviewer, this ridiculous paper that we wrote, but it's really, it was based in a lot of literature that queer theorists have come up with that makes no sense. Ward said that in this sense, many believe sexual contact between these straight white men during these activities is not homosexual. Let me read that part again. Ward said that in this sense, many believe sexual contact between these straight white men during these activities is not homosexual. Oftentimes, they are viewed as humorous or demeaning. These activities, she said, are practiced for the sake of masculinity and strengthening male bonds, particularly straight white male bonds. It's just fascinating the way these people think about the world, isn't it? But again, we can turn back to Gail Rubin. What did Gail Rubin do throughout this paper already? We heard in the previous section, I don't remember how this paper lays out. We might run into it again. We probably will talking about Foucault and the, the idea of these genealogies, these archaeologies or whatever, these critical genealogies of the ideas of, say, homosexuality. And so Foucault's basic point is what we're hearing here. This is that postmodern Marxism of Foucault with regard to sex and sexuality. Foucault wanted there to be no real boundaries for it not to be judged. Okay, and so what did he argue? He argued that what we did was we defined homosexuality, and up until then, people just did kind of whatever they wanted, except that the religious people called it a mortal sin and beat people up and did all these terrible things. Uh, but then later, we created the category of homosexual and the category of heterosexual, and those categories are fake. They are socially constructed categories for the means of social control. In other words, they're politically constructed categories, and that's where Gail Rubin said right at the outset of this essay, sex is always political. And what the argument is, is it's much murkier than that. It's much blurrier than that. We have to tear down the boundaries. We have to think differently. We can't think, and mostly Gail Rubin's talking about kink, but with Foucault being invoked, she's definitely also talking about homosexuality, and she is literally talking about homosexuality. So what we see is 30 some odd years later, we find Ward saying, in this sense, many believe sexual contact between these straight white men during these activities is not homosexual. Ward also said, and because it's intersectional by the time Ward's writing this, uh, we can't just say that it's practiced for the sake of masculinity and strengthening male bonds. We have to go further and say particularly straight white male bonds. Ward also said homosexuality is often an invisible and important ingredient in heterosexual masculinity. Again, let me just read that again, because the first time you hear it, you're like, it doesn't say that. No, it does. Homosexuality is often an invisible and important ingredient in heterosexual masculinity. I'm a straight guy. It's not. At least not for me. She talked about heteroflexibility, which is one of the concepts we use in our fake paper. She talked about heteroflexibility, in which men ultimately identify as straight, but sometimes engaging, that's a typo, in sexual activity with other men. No, those people are bisexual. 
but they identify as straight but sometimes engage in sexual activity with other men. Quote, my aim with this work is to offer a new way to think about heterosexual subjectivity, Ward said. Now we have to pause, because now we're in the realm of Marxism. This is queer Marxism. You have to learn to see this. You have to learn to see that what we're dealing with is Marxism. Marxism believed that the fundamental nature of man that separates him from animal because he threw down God is not that he has, you know, the divine spark. It's not that he's made in the image of God in the Imago Dei. It's not that. It can't be that. Man has made himself. Man made himself through his social relations, and his social relations dictate the range of his ability to imagine as a creative subject. And so the goal of Marxism, according to what Marx is saying, is to awaken people to the fact that their capacity has been stolen to imagine and to see themselves as creative subjects has been stolen from them. They are alienated from their true nature as man rather than animal by the fact of wage labor and the division of labor. So when we're talking about finding an anchor for subjectivity, like we hear Kimberly Crenshaw talk about in Mapping the Margins, her first big paper, about it's the second paper on intersectionality, but her first really big one, and we hear Gail Rubin talking about that to the point where I invoked the similarities to mapping the margins in the previous uh, episode of this series. And then we hear this from Ward. My aim is uh, my aim in this work is to offer a new way to think about heterosexual subjectivity. What we hear is she wants people to be able to think about what it means to be a heterosexual subject in a different way, that they can create heterosexuality however they want, not the way that society has told them it has to be. Okay, this is Marxism. Please understand, this is queer Marxism. Society has erected a heteronormative domain. This is their theory. This is how they think. It is socially constructed and it exists to limit the subjective range of heterosexuals and also homosexuals, but specifically heterosexuals. They created the terms heterosexual and homosexual or heterosexual and queer specifically to police this terrain to maintain certain advantages for those who fall within the heteronormative range and to justify oppression and abuses of people who fall out of the heteronormative range. Okay. Now what that does through structural determinism, which is a concept I've talked about over and over and over again, the Marxists believe that the structure of society determines the range of your ideas, your values, your character, your morality, who you are able to imagine yourself to be as a person. And what the Marxist theory here would be is that heteronormativity has structured society, has structured society in a way such that people think about themselves as homosexuals or heterosexuals in particular ways that limits their ability to think of themselves as heterosexuals in other ways or homosexuals in other ways. And so here she wants to complicate the notion of heterosexuality to include homosexuality under certain conditions. And she points out homosexuality is often an invisible and important ingredient in heterosexual masculinity. Again and again, every paragraph, many believe sexual contact between straight white men during sexual activities is not homosexual. She says it again and again. Why? Because her aim is to offer a new way to think about heterosexual subjectivity. I am a heterosexual. I am a subject. I have subjective thoughts. I live inside my head. I envision my life a certain way. But society, through heteronormativity, has told me a certain way, a certain range of expression that I can be as a heterosexual. I can't find that man attractive. I can't, you know, want to kiss a man. I can't want to whatever else they do. 
Okay. I can't touch men certain ways. I can't cuddle. I can't, whatever it happens to be. That's not manly. That's not masculine. And she wants to expand the range of heterosexual subjectivity. So I say, oh, well, I can still be straight and still and, and have homosexual encounters. This is what they're doing. And the reason is because, as she said, just a few paragraphs back, she said that the point of this is to define queerness as resistance to regimes of the normal, because normal is arbitrary, created by people who are normal, get to define what's normal, and get to use it to exclude other people from being considered normal. This is a Marxist theory of sex and sexuality. Now, I know it sounds like I've, this is, I've just gone like way out here, but this is where Gail Rubin's ideas have led. Her new radical politics of sex and sexuality have led here. Where did I leave off? Sorry, I had to scroll around to find this. Heteroflexibility. Okay. My aim in this work, she said, is to offer a new way to think about heterosexual subjectivity. In other words, to find yourself as a creative subject who gets to have the creative power to define what it means to be heterosexual in a, in a new regime that has complicated and synthesized a new meaning of heterosexuality that includes some homosexuality, which would be its dialectical opposite. Take a little heterosexuality or a lot of it, sprinkle in a little of its opposite, thesis, antithesis, synthesize some new heteroflexible domain where you're sometimes homosexual, but you're definitely not bisexual because uh, you're definitely still heterosexual because we've complicated the notion of heterosexuality. This is a Marxist theory of sexuality. This is what Gail Rubin was creating. She says that she wants to, I didn't even finish her whole thought, to offer a new way to think about heterosexual activity, not as the absence of homosexuality, but as its own unique mode of engaging homosexual sex, a mode that is characterized by pretense, disidentification, and heteronormative investments. So now she wants to say, well, straight people do have homosexual sex sometimes. We want to reconstitute heterosexual subjectivity to understand that sometimes it's homosexual as a new mode, though, of engaging. You're still straight if you do homosexual things in particular ways. And so long as there's this pretense about it, the disidentification, you don't identify as bisexual or homosexual, you just do it sometimes, and you still do other heteronormative things to say how heteronormative and heterosexual you are. Like, you know, you hook up with your broke back mountain and you come down and talk about what a straight guy you are all the time. That's making heteronormative investments. Then what you've actually done is you've actually found a new mode, according to this gender and sexuality professor, a new mode of being heterosexual. You're not in denial. You're not covering something up. You're not struggling with bisexuality that you don't know how to articulate for yourself. No, you found a completely new mode of heterosexuality that is sometimes just not heterosexual. This is what they're doing, and the purpose was to complicate the idea of heterosexual so that the concept of normal gets dissolved and torn down because queer Marxism can be summarized in a single sentence, abolition of the normal. She, I guess this means Ward, made the case that these activities, I love how it always just keeps saying that, may not just be acts of bullying for young people coming into a group, such as the freshmen in a fraternity or the new recruits in a military unit, but rather desires these men usually do not follow. 
Tom Sweeney, a freshman attending the talk, said he believed this topic needed to be given more attention. Poor Tom Sweeney that he got dragged into this. Quote, I think that homosexual activity, especially between straight people, is something that is taboo and never discussed, but is an issue that has been very relevant to the culture for a very long time, Sweeney said. That's literally the end of the article. Poor Tom Sweeney that it ends on that point. So Tom Sweeney is a victim of grooming. Grooming into what? Homosexual activity? Well, that's up to him, whether he acts on it or not. Groomed into believing that heterosexuality means something other than heterosexuality. Groomed into believing a sexual Marxist or an identity Marxist or a queer Marxist conception of sex, gender, and sexuality, such that he's now clearly confused. He's been ideologically groomed to believe something about sex and sexuality that is just not the case. And that's why I keep calling these people groomers. So like I said, we blame Gail Rubin for this in large part. Not that she gets so much credit. She was part of a current that was developing at the time. We blame Gail Rubin for a lot of this because Gail Rubin was the person who wrote the paper that we're reading now, Thinking Sex, in 1984, that sought, as she phrases it, uh a radical theory of the politics of sexuality that led us to this point where the war on the normal is explicit. The war on the normal has a Marxist purpose. The purpose is to abolish the concept of normal entirely because the concept of normal is regarded as a special form of property that some people get access to, which privileges them and which other people are excluded from, which uh, disadvantages them. And those people are not necessarily just gay or whatever, in fact, it's decoupled from homosexual acts, which is heard from Professor Ward. It is, in fact, that they have an awakened consciousness of this oppressive nature of normalcy and therefore are now queer proletarians, uh, queers in the political sense. They are politically queer, which Pete Buttigieg was not because he was straight passing, because he wore a suit, because at least at the time he showed up to work most or all days and he did normal things and he wasn't engaged in flamboyant, obvious queer politics, the kind of antinomian clownish forms that Herbert Marcuse said that the revolution would necessarily have to take way back in 1969 in an essay on liberation, the exact kinds of clownish forms that Gail Rubin is actually encouraging in this paper. So we're going to pick back up now with a long step before we get back to the paper. But like I said, this is a shorter section. There's only a few pages. We went through 13 pages previously. We're going to go through about six today uh, in this episode. And uh, we're going to go back into thinking sex part two. And again, I'm going to remind you because we might run into it in this part that there were parts of this. I read this on an airplane and there were parts where I laughed out loud on the airplane to the point where people actually were looking at me because it's just kind of so hilarious. So let's bear with with that and try to try to not crack up too much. But we also have to remember where this has led, which we just heard, but it also has led to groomer schools, all this weird perversion in coming out of corporations like Disney for your children in schools for your children, her arguments for the decriminalization of child pornography, her arguments in favor of man, boy, love and cross generational encounters some of this stuff is actually kind of funny where she's talking about keeping perverts out of whatever her uses of the word perverts crack me up where she talks about some uh, BDSM stuff is kind of funny the way she puts it. Um, but where it's led is not funny at all. This BDSM stuff we're going to encounter in this paper is hilarious. In fact, I laughed out loud so hard that it was kind of embarrassing on the plane when I, when I hit it in the paper at one point. But this is why you see at the so-called pride parades, literally fetishists out in their fetish gear and their leathers and their chaps and their little weird outfits, 
hanging out and talking to kids. And this is why this has been this huge argument for a few years. This is the beast that got unleashed by Rubin and her associates in queer theory. Now, we're not going to give her all the credit. Judith Butler did a ton to develop queer theory, as did um, uh, Eve Sedgwick did a lot to develop queer theory, her so-called epistemology of the closet, which we should probably go through at some point, um, as did people like Jack slash Judith Halberstam. We got a trans person involved there. Um, there's another one, Halperin, that did a lot. I can't think of Halperin's first name. It's probably Jack slash Judith also or something like that. So anyway, we pick up here in the middle of the paper, sexual transformation. Um, just to kind of remind you where we left off, uh, she was just going through kind of all of this stuff about how uh, basically different, how, how, how there have been different regimes of control, kind of doing a Foucauldian um, critical genealogy of sex and sexuality for for psychology. It's mature. So remember this paragraph here. She said, the no, this notion of a single ideal sexuality characterizes most system of thought, systems of thought about sex. For religion, the ideal is procreative marriage. For psychology, it's mature heterosexuality. Although its content varies, the format of a single sexual standard is continually reconstituted within other rhetorical frameworks, including feminism and socialism. It is just as objectionable to insist that everyone should be lesbian, non-monogamous, or kinky as to believe that everyone should be heterosexual, married, or vanilla, though the latter set of opinions are backed by considerably more coercive power than the former. So you hear that she we left off in this kind of critical constructivist, um, explicitly critical constructivist. She says she's using a critical approach and social constructivism from Foucault. Uh, so you hear that, the power dynamic, there's your critical side and the constructivism that we really can't make any real determin ter determinations about what is appropriate sex. And this is kind of arbitrarily enforced on people um, with lots of punishment if you're on the wrong side and lots of leeway if you're on the right side, which I said last time is like a repressive tolerance, Marcusa, of sexuality that she's actually discussed here. So now we pick up with sexual transformation. Now, let me just, before I go into this, let me make another point about Marxism. That T word needs to be a tip off for you every time. When you hear transform, transformative, transform society, transformation, transformational, you better think real close about whether or not what you're reading is Marxism. The goal of Marxism is to become conscious, in this case queer, so that you can transform society, or maybe you can transform sex. Maybe you can transform sexuality, exactly like Professor Ward wanted to transform the idea of heterosexuality into something else, to make it become something that it is not, because Marxism is a religion that believes everything is incomplete and is in a process of becoming and moving toward its idealized state, and it's our job to identify how it hasn't become far enough and to move it dialectically in that direction by combining opposites to make something that doesn't make sense, like adding in various forms of homosexual behavior into heterosexuality, to have a more inclusive heterosexuality that allows for certain homosexual forms as long as people are sufficiently invested in hetero heteronormative things and they have a certain level of um, like joking around about what they're doing, uh, you know, a certain unseriousness about it. Um, and I guess if they say no homo while they do homosexual acts. So transformation, that's the title of this section, sexual transformation. She starts off with a quote from Foucault from 78. So I guess would be history of sexuality then. As defined by the ancient 
civil or canonical codes, sodomy was a category of forbidden acts. The perpetrator was nothing more than the juridical subject of them. The 19th century homosexual became a personage, a past, a case history, and a childhood, in addition to being a type of life, a life form, and a morphology, with an indiscreet anatomy and possibly a mysterious physiology. The sodomite had been a temporary aberration. The homosexual was now a species. This is kind of typical of Foucault's style. It's kind of grandiose. It's kind of a little bit nonsense. It's a little bit like, let's lean in and exaggerate the way that things are being regarded. So, we saw that exact same thing, though. That's what it was in Ward. The sodomite had been a temporary aberration. The homosexual was now a species. We created the idea of heterosexual and alongside it homosexual so that we could classify people into almost subspecies of human, normal and abnormal. What had been an aberrant behavior that was shunned by the religious became something that made you who you were, what your essential ontology is, your being. On Twitter, you know, I went through another paper, queer theory paper, where the author, and this was an early childhood education, if you recall, this was the one, if you've seen my Twitter feed, if you haven't, I know, I know you won't know what I'm talking about, I'm not going to go through the whole thing here. I might do a Groomer Schools 4 episode on it and read through that paper at some point too, but this, it's not that exciting, but at one point in the paper, the author says that the whole point is that the way that, that things are defined comes down to her uh, human ontology, which is Marx's theory of what makes you a person, what makes you be as a person. And so here we have homosexual as being imprinted on people. This is who you are. This is what it means to be a person who is or heterosexual or homosexual. They are this kind. Those are that kind. They're different. There's nothing in between. And queer theory exists to try to blur those boundaries, to tear those down. Specifically, as we heard, to complicate those things so that the the regulatory regime established by the discursive modes, as they would phrase it. In other words, the fact that we um, categorize people into this, ex get certain expectations. If somebody says you're gay, you kind of expect they probably uh, are gay. And if they say that they're straight, you kind of expect that they're not gay and that they're straight. And um, so they, how they, they, what their sexual behavior is. That fact entirely needs to be complicated and thrown out. That needs to be rethought completely. We need to have a more synthetic understanding that enables the broader range of subjectivity, sexual subjectivity, so that that can transform, so that people's very sense of being can be freed into a freer human ontology that's liberated from the regulatory regime. And the, when I said of discursive forms, it's the idea that these words, heterosexual and homosexual, these pieces of language are the things creating and enforcing the regime. You're gay, you're straight, those are words. That means you're in a box, you're in a category. There's nothing else you can do. If you're straight, you can't engage in homosexual sex sometimes. That's what Ward was saying, because you're straight. Now you kind of get what's going on. The sodomite had been, before this had happened, Foucault tells us, a temporary aberration but now the homosexual is a species. So now we go back to Gail Rubin. That's her introduction. So this is the un, uh, unvarnished critical constructivist approach that she's taking. She says, in spite of many continuities with ancestral forms, modern sexual arrangements have a distinctive character which sets them apart from pre-existing systems. So she's going to rehash this. In Western Europe and in the United States, industrialization and urbanization reshaped the traditional rural and peasant populations into a new 
urban industrial and service workforce. Now, I'll pause to point out, since we're kind of also doing this Freire podcast series, we're going through the Freire Marx, Marxist education theory. This is exactly his argument about what happened in third world countries like Brazil, where he had lived, is that society went forward through industrialization and urbanization and made there be a reliance upon literacy that didn't previously exist, which marginalized the illiterate. So now we see this here. Uh, it generated new forms of state apparatus, reorganized family relations, altered gender roles, and made possible new forms of identity, produced new varieties of social inequality, and created new formats for political and ideological conflict. It also gave rise to a new sexual system characterized by distinct types of sexual persons, populations, stratification, and political conflict. The writings of 19th century sexology suggest the appearance of a kind of erotic speciation. However outlandish their explanations, the early sexologists were witnessing the emergence of new kinds of erotic individuals and their aggregation into rudimentary communities. So I don't have to explain this because I just explained it through Foucault. She's literally just repeating Foucault here. The modern sexual system contains sets of these sexual populations, stratified by the operation of an ideological and social hierarchy. If your Marxism bell didn't just ring, you're not ready for this fight. Their Marxism bell should have just rung clearly and loudly. The modern sexual systems, so now we're talking about systemic ideas about sex and sexuality and what it creates within the world, contain sets of these sexual populations stratified, so some are privileged and some are oppressed, by the operation of an ideological hierarchy and a social hierarchy. Ideological and social hierarchy. Marxist theory is that there's a social hierarchy based on the stratification based on access to the property of capital. The people in the upper class create an ideology that justifies why they get to have it and why other people need to be excluded from it. Now we switch out of capital and we put in normalcy. Then we have within the sexual realm, certain people are considered normal, they have access to normalcy, and they create an ideology called heteronormativity or cis-heteronormativity that justifies why they get to maintain the top status in the social hierarchy, conditioning everybody's subjectivity. And their ideology is supposed to brainwash people into accepting that social hierarchy. That's exactly Marxism. So if your Marxism bell didn't ring there, you've got some more work to do. You've got to be able to see this. You've got to be able to explain it. We're not going to convince anybody to get rid of this unless you can see it and explain it. But if there's any doubt that queer theory is queer Marxism, here, without even invoking Marx yet, we have explicitly the Marxist underlying assumptions that formed all of leftism since Marx. No leftist has really departed from them plainly visible, just not explicitly cited. Differences in social value create friction among these groups. So there's Marx's class antagonism theory. The privileged have higher social value, the abnormal or queer have lower social value. So therefore, these classes aren't just stratified, they're in conflict with one another. But we didn't use the word conflict, we said friction. Creates friction among these groups who engage in a political contest called queer class antagonism or sexual class antagonism, to alter or maintain their place in the ranking. Marxist class struggle theory right there. That's Marxist conflict theory. Queer theory is a neo-Marxist 
conflict theory of sex, gender, and sexuality. Exactly like how in race Marxism I say critical race theory is a neo-Marxist conflict theory of race. It's the same thing. Contemporary sexual politics should be reconceptualized in terms of the emergence and ongoing development of this system, its social relations, the ideologies which interpret it, and the characteristic modes of conflict. Ding, 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 ding. That's your Marxism alarm going off. And contemporary sexual politics should be reconceptualized in terms of all of this, right? Seize the means of production of these discursive forms, these means of social relations or relating, the ideologies that interpret it. We have to get rid of this heteronormativity, cis-heteronormativity, etc. We need new ideologies to interpret this, and that's going to retool the modes of conflict. Homosexuality, she tells us, is the best example of this process of erotic speciation. Homosexual behavior is always present among humans. Is it? But in different societies and epochs, it may be rewarded or punished, required or forbidden, a temporary experience or a lifelong vocation. In some New Guinea societies, for example, homosexual activities are obligatory for all males. Homosexual acts are considered utterly masculine, roles are based on age, and partners are determined by kinship status. Although these men engage, although these men engage in extensive homosexual and pedophile behavior, they are neither homosexuals nor pederasts. So here we're going back into this same genealogical or archaeological idea of Foucault to say, look, here's this other culture that does it differently, does it completely differently, and it doesn't taint their masculinity. So our ideas are socially constructed, they're contingent upon who we are, and they're probably actually false, so they can be rethought in terms of a sexual liberation paradigm, a new radical politics of sex and sexuality, a Marxist queer theory. Nor, she says, was the 16th century sodomite a homosexual. In 1631, Mervyn Touche, Earl of Castlehaven, was tried and executed for sodomy. It is clear from the proceedings that the Earl was not understood by himself or anyone else to, to be a particular kind of sexual individual. While from the 20th century viewpoint, I'm trying to figure out if that's a quote, it is. Quote, while from the 20th century viewpoint, Lord Castlehaven obviously suffered from psychosexual problems requiring the services of an analyst, from the 17th century viewpoint, he had deliberately broken the law of God and the laws of England and required the simpler services of an executioner, quoting somebody named Bingham. Okay, so again, we're seeing the same thing. Your beliefs about what constitutes sex and sexuality and categories is socially contingent, socially constructed, political artifice used to create social control. That's Foucault's thesis. What Gail Rubin is doing as a sex-positive feminist is working Foucault's thesis into the existing sex-positive feminism of the day to create queer theory. The Earl did not slip in his tightest doublet Sorry, into. The Earl did not slip into his tightest doublet and waltz down to the nearest gay tavern to mingle with his fellow sodomists. He stayed in his manor house and buggered his servants. Gay self-awareness, gay pubs, the sense of group commonality, and even the term homosexual were not part of the Earl's universe. Okay, so he banged his male servants, but he wasn't gay because... He had no gay self-awareness. There's no idea for him to accept it, so he wasn't gay. 
So the language creates the reality, not the other way around. There were no gay pubs for him to hang out. There was no sense of group commonality. There was no folkish nationalism to being queer folks, F-O-L-X. There was no group sense. There was no community identity that he could lean into that makes gay have meaning. There was no culture. It's not culturally derived, so it's not really gay. And even the term homosexual, there wasn't even a word. How could he be homosexual if there was no word for it? These were not even a part of the Earl's universe. Therefore, he wasn't actually homosexual, even though he apparently buggered his servants in his manor house and was executed for it. The New Guinea bachelor and the sodomite nobleman are only tangentially related to a modern gay man. Is that true? Only tangentially related? Who may migrate from rural Colorado to San Francisco in order to live in a gay neighborhood, work in in a gay business, and participate in an elaborate experience that includes a self-conscious identity, group solidarity, a literature, a press, and a high level of political activity. You remember all those times on the frickin' internet where these people made fun of me for saying that they use the word folks in the sense of folkish nationalism, in the sense that their community, their identity category works like an identity nation that has maybe a friggin' flag? that they fly and that is all over the freaking place. But what makes gay gay, according to Gail Rubin, according to what we just heard, the nobleman did not qualify. And what do we hear that a gay man in the contemporary era might qualify as gay under when he goes to San Francisco, live in a gay neighborhood, work in a gay business, participate in an elaborate experience that includes a self-conscious, maybe national type identity, group solidarity like nationalism, a literature, a press, like a national newspaper maybe, and a high level of political activity. Huh. It's folkish nationalism. It's folkish nationalism mapped onto identity categories. It's perfectly clear. She literally said that the nobleman in 1631 was not gay because there was no such word, there was no press, there were no pubs, there was no gay community in which he could identify himself, so no gay awareness. But now we have a consciousness of what it means to be gay and in a gay community participating in gay activities with literature, press, etc. All the trappings of a nation, of a folk nation. This is the folkish religion that both Hegel and then much later W.E.B. Du Bois and all these people in between tried to figure out how to establish, and in this case based, an identity category. I didn't make that up. I'm not defensive. I'm just saying. I didn't make that up. People literally make fun of me for that crap on Twitter all the time. Here it is. What would you say? Oh, you may migrate from, let's say, Colorado to Mexico in order to live in a Mexican neighborhood, work in a Mexican business, participate in an elaborate Mexican experience that includes a self-conscious Mexican identity, Mexican solidarity, Mexican literature, Mexican press, and a high level of Mexican political activity. You would say that, well, that sounds like nationalism. But now it's gay, 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 instead of Mexican. It's the same damn thing. You don't, it's not a complicated argument. In modern Western industrial societies, Gail Rubin tells us, homosexuality has acquired much of the institutional structure of an ethnic group, a folk nationalist identity. It even has a flag. In fact, it has like 400 flags, and the flags eat each other and cannibalize each other and all kinds of weird stuff. Maybe they mate with each other. Maybe that's what they're doing. Maybe that's why they've got all those funny triangular stripes, including a Ukraine flag now, biting into the rainbow flag. 
The relocation of homoeroticism into these quasi-ethnic, nucleated, sexually constituted communities. Doesn't that sound nationalist? The relocation of homoeroticism into these quasi-ethnic, nucleated, sexually constituted communities is to some extent a consequence of the transfers of population brought by industrialization. And I would say that the reason we have folk nationalism located in identities is because of the transfers of population activity brought about by digitization in social media. You can get together and have a gigantic gay community made up of millions and millions of people that functions in some sense like a state, at least conceptually. And it doesn't matter where you live. As laborers migrated to work in cities, there were increased opportunities for voluntary communities to form. As individuals migrated onto social media platforms or increased opportunities for voluntary communities to form, say in chat groups, homosexuality inclined women and men who would have been vulnerable and isolated in most pre-industrial villages. Uh, sorry, I apparently put the wrong stress. I was like, this sentence doesn't work. Homosexually inclined men and women who would have been vulnerable and isolated in most pre-industrial villages, began to congregate in small corners of the big cities. Most large 19th century cities in Western Europe and North America had areas where men could cruise for other men. Lesbian communities seemed to have coalesced more slowly and on a smaller scale. Huh, how about that? Nevertheless, by the 1890s, there were several cafes in Paris near the Place uh, Pigalle, I don't know how to say French things, Place Pigalle, maybe, which catered to a lesbian clientele, and it is likely that they were similar that there were similar places in the other major capitals of Western Europe. Areas like these acquired bad reputations, so now we've got to do the critical part, which alerted other interested individuals of their existence and location. In the United States, lesbian and gay male territories were well established in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and Los Angeles in the 1950s. Sexually motivated migration to places such as Greenwich Village had become a sizable social sociological phenomenon. By the late 1970s, sexual migration was occurring on a scale so significant that it began to have a recognizable impact on urban politics in the United States, with San Francisco being the most notable and notorious example. And so, now we have to go into a weird turn. Prostitution has undergone a similar metamorphosis. Prostitution began to change from a temporary job to a more permanent occupation as a result of 19th century agitation, legal reform, and police persecution. Prostitutes who had been part of the general working class population became increasingly isolated as a member or as members of an outcast group. Prostitutes and other sex workers differ from homosexuals and other sexual minorities. Hmm, yes, they do. Sex work is an occupation while sexual deviation is an erotic preference. Is it a preference? Nevertheless, they share some common features of social organization. Like homosexuals, prostitutes are a criminal sexual population stigmatized on the basis of sexual activity. Prostitutes and male homosexuals are the primary prey of vice police everywhere. Like gay men, prostitutes occupy well-demarcated urban territories and battle with police to defend and maintain those territories, a pimp territory. The legal persecution of both populations is justified by an elaborate ideology which classifies them as dangerous and inferior undesirables who are not entitled to be left in peace. So we're trying to mix together the way that prostitutes 
and homosexuals are treated because there are some similarities apparently. And is the goal here to do what? To elevate, it's to garner pity for the homosexuals and to what? Elevate the status of prostitutes. Thinking sex, Gail Rubin. Besides organizing homosexuals and prostitutes into localized populations, now what we're really seeing here is just like Ferrari's argument, by the way, that that illiteracy is marginalizing these people. Now it's the idea that we're going to have, you know, sexual decency and anti-obscenity kind of mentalities and laws as marginalizing prostitutes and being conflated here with also gay people. Besides organizing homosexuals and prostitutes into localized populations, the quote modernization modernization of sex has generated a system of continual sexual ethnogenesis. But they're not nations. They're not folkish national type things. Other populations of erotic dissidents, commonly known as the perversions and the paraphilias, also be those are in scare quotes, by the way also began to coalesce. Sexualities kept marching out of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual and onto the pages of social history. At present, several other groups are trying to emulate the successes of homosexuals. Huh. So what we're going to hear is that people realize that maybe there's some, some reasons to that homosexuality is something that you're just born with, and that's what it is. And so we're going to treat people under a civil rights paradigm that way. And the queer theorists are going to latch on like a friggin' parasite. And all these at present, let me just back up. Sexualities keep marching out of the diagnostic and statistical manual and onto the pages of social history. At present, several other groups are trying to emulate the successes of homosexuals. Bisexuals? And you think, okay, sadomasochists, individuals who prefer cross-generational encounters. Now, why did you use the euphemism for pedophiles there, Gail? Why did you do that? You didn't say pedophiles. You said individuals who prefer cross-generational encounters. This definitely is one of those fake things. Pedophile. You know, that's three syllables, right? Individuals who prefer cross-generational encounters. is like 17 or 18 syllables with a friggin' hyphen in it, right? This is totally the George Carlin joke. Why did you use the euphemism? Several other groups are trying to emulate the successes of homosexuals. Listen, gays, you're getting, you got tricked. Everything you fought for is getting ruined by the queer theorists because they latched on like a parasite. And right here is where it happened. Sexualities keep marching out of the diagnostic. This is the first queer theory paper. Sexualities keep marching out of the diagnostic and statistical manual. That's the, psycho- the psychosis manual. And onto the pages of social history at present, several other groups are trying to emulate the successes of homosexuals, bisexuals, sadomasochists, individuals who prefer cross-generational encounters, aka pedophiles, transsexuals, and transvestites are all in various states of community formation and identity acquisition. The perversions are not proliferating as much as they are attempting to acquire social space, small businesses, political resources, and a measure of relief from the penalties for sexual heresy. Cross-generational encounters do not constitute sexual heresy. They are a heinous crime. It is child molestation. 
with transsexuals, which have become transgender. Even Gail Rubin couldn't have predicted that change, that slippery slope in 1984. The feminist movement has basically died. It is being killed. We now have rampant amounts of puberty-blocked kids who are being chemically sterilized, having other health issues possibly for life, becoming permanent pharmaceutical patients as a result, undergoing surgeries to remove their genitals, their breasts, plastic surgeries to change their appearance, permanent irreversible damage as a result of having transsexuals and transvestites who groomed into transgender, who became literally invincible, not just as adults choosing to do what they can or need feel like they need to do about whatever their situation happens to be, but rather thousands upon thousands upon thousands of children, cross-generational encounters. The perversions are not proliferating as much as they are attempting to acquire social space, small businesses, political resources, and a measure of relief from the penalties for sexual heresy because they are trying to emulate the successes of homosexuals as though nothing's different. And this is where the gays that are waking up to this are completely right. I guess I'm supposed to say gays and lesbians, but the people who I'm talking to are based and get it and don't care. What is going on is they have become a parasite on a civil rights movement like they always do. Critical race theory is a parasite on the civil race civil rights movement. Queer theory was a parasite on the gay civil rights movement. And they hide behind that in everything that was fought for by gays and lesbians, bisexuals, and their allies who believed in the civil rights cause. Everything that was fought for is being perverted and turned into something poisonous and destructive literally cross-generational encounters. It's only a matter of time until the so-called minor attracted persons or the pedophiles, the P, gets added to LGBTQP. LGBTQ+, what's the plus? Starts with a P. Then we have fetishists. We have now furries, not predicted here. We have all of this stuff with the trans and the destruction of children. And we're just supposed to affirm, 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 because pride, 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 because parasite, 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 because Marxist, 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 Marxist. That closes that section. We enter a new section, sexual stratification. Again, it's a Marxist theory. She quotes from Foucault at length to open. Again, the history of sexuality. An entire sub-race was born, different, despite certain kinship ties from the libertines of the past. So we're not talking about people who just want to have fun or orgies or whatever. Not libertines, let anything go, you do you. No, a sub-race was born different, except despite certain kinship ties from the libertines of the past. From the end of the 18th century to our own, they circulated through the pores of society. They were always hounded, but not always by laws were often locked up, but not always in prisons, were sick perhaps, but scandalous, dangerous victims prey to a strange evil that also bore the name of vice and sometimes crime. They were children wise beyond their years, precocious little girls, ambiguous schoolboys, dubious servants and educators, excuse me, cruel or maniacal husbands, solitary collectors, ramblers with bizarre impulses, 
they haunted the houses of correction, the penal colonies, the tribunals, and the asylums. They carried their infamy to the doctors and their sickness to the judges. This was the numberless family of perverts who were on friendly terms with the delinquents and akin to madmen. Michel Foucault. Just going to point out they were children wise beyond their years. Cross-generational encounters. Huh. Groomers. Frickin' pedo groomers. The industrial transformation of Western Europe and North America tells us Gail Rubin brought about new forms of social stratification. Marxist theory. The resultant inequalities of class are well known and have been explored in detail by a century of scholarship. Doesn't say which scholarship that is. Hmm. Hmm. Industrial transformation of Western Europe and North America brought about social stratifications that have been explored by a century of scholarship. Huh. Wonder which scholarship that would be. Marxist. Just don't mention what it specifically is, and most people won't realize that you're referencing Marx. The construction of modern systems of racism and ethnic injustice have been well documented and critically assessed. Oh, critically. How about that? Marxism. Critical race theory. It doesn't exist yet in 1984. But the prototype uh, race mod race uh, thought, the Marxist race ideas, have been coming in. The Marxists were toying around with pre-critical race theory tools, at least in the 1920s and 30s already. There was Marxist analyses of race. There were feminist analyses of sex and sexuality and gender. Feminist thought has analyzed the prevailing organization of gender oppression. But although specific erotic groups such as militant homosexuals and sex workers have agitated against their own mistreatment, there has been no equivalent attempt to locate particular varieties of sexual persecution within a more general system of sexual stratification. In other words, there's no Marxist theory of sexuality. There's no queer Marxism. There's a feminist Marxism, there's a race Marxism coming about, there's an ethnic Marxism, there's a class Marxism, but there's no sexual Marxism, there's no queer Marxism. Nevertheless, such a system exists, and it's uh, and in its contemporary form, it is a consequence of Western industrialization. How weird that it came from the same thing as a Marxist analysis would say it came from. Sex law is the most adamantine instrument of sexual stratification and erotic persecution. The state routinely intervenes in sexual behavior at a level that would not be tolerated in other areas of social life. Most people are unaware of the extent of sex law, the quantity and qualities of illegal sexual behavior, and the punitive character of legal sanctions. Although federal agencies may be involved in obscenity and prostitution cases, most sex laws are enacted at the state and municipal level and enforcement is largely in the hands of local police. Just kind of a foreshadowing. Where do you think it's going to go if she's talking about sex law? <laughs> Dark places. Thus, there's a tremendous amount of variation in the laws applicable to any given locale. Moreover, enforcement of sex laws varies dramatically with the local political climate. In spite of this legal thicket, one can make some tentative and qualified generalizations. My discussion of sex law does not apply to laws against sexual coercion, sexual assault, or rape. It does pertain to the myriad prohibitions on consensual sex and the, quote, status offenses such as statutory rape. Okay, what is statutory rape? I'll bite. Oh yeah, it's cross-generational encounters. Hmm. The myriad prohibitions on consensual sex 
have a point, and the status offenses such as statutory rape. Uh-oh. Sex law is harsh. The penalties for violating sex statuses are universally out of proportion to any social or individual harm. A single act of consensual but illicit sex, such as placing one's lips upon the genitalia of an enthusiastic partner, is punished in many states with more severity than rape, battery, or murder. I wonder if that's actually true. Maybe it was in the 80s. I don't know. Maybe it was in the 70s. I don't know. Each such genital kiss, each lewd caress, is a separate crime. It is therefore painfully easy to commit multiple felonies in the course of a single evening of illegal passion. So you first evoke the pathos. You get people saying, that's not fair. That's ridiculous. That's a thing. Then the next thing you know, we're talking about statutory rape. Once someone is convicted of a sex violation, a second performance of the same act is grounds for prosecution as a repeat offender, in which case penalties will often even be, will often be even more severe. Does this happen? How often? In some states, individuals have become repeat felons for having engaged in homosexual lovemaking on two separate occasions. Once an erotic activity has been proscribed by sex law, the full power of the state enforces conformity to the values embodied in those laws. Aha, law is not neutral either. We need a deep critical theory of that. Sex laws are notoriously easy to pass, as legislators are loath to be soft on vice. Once on the books, they are extremely difficult to dislodge. Sex law is not a perfect reflection of the prevailing moral evaluations of sexual conduct. Sexual variation per se is more specifically policed by the mental health profession's popular ideology and extra-legal social practice. Oh, so it's not really all that heavily legally enforced, but you've made the big scary case to evoke the pathos, and now you can walk that back a little. Some of the most detested erotic behaviors, such as fetishism and sadomasochism, are not as closely or completely regulated by the criminal justice system as somewhat less stigmatized practices such as homosexuality. We can admit that the criminalization of homosexuality was probably a bad idea. That's fine. But you can see the game being played. And we've just now brought up sadomasochism, so it's going to get kinky. Areas of sexual behavior come under the purview of the law when they become objects of social concern and political uproar. Each sex scare or morality campaign deposits new regulations as a kind of fossil record of its passage. The legal sediment is thickest, and, the, and sex law has its greatest potency in areas involving obscenity, money, minors, and homosexuality. Huh, minors. So each sex scare or morality... So what, what, what are we seeing here? We're, again, another, whether you want to call it an archaeology, maybe that's the better word, a Foucauldian archaeology. She's saying if you look back through the law, there are all these pretty much bogus sex scares. They freak people out. They get on morality crusades. They put these laws in. You can't really get rid of these laws. And now you have all this bad sex law involving obscenity, money, minors, and homosexuality. Obscenity laws, she tells us, enforce a powerful taboo against direct representation of erotic activities. Current emphasis on the ways in which sexuality has become a focus of social attention should not be misused to undermine a critique of this prohibition. It is one thing to create sexual discourse in the form of psychoanalysis or in the course of a morality crusade. It is quite another to depict sex acts or the genitalia graphically. The first is socially permissible in a way the second is not. 
It's almost like they're confused about things being different on purpose, because if they are sufficiently confused about things being different on purpose, then they can say, none of this makes any sense, and we can throw out everything. See, you allow people to do this one thing, but you won't allow people to do this other thing. Therefore, we've got to have graphics depictions of sexual activity in children's books in school, apparently. Sexual speech is forced into reticence, euphemism, and indirection. Really? You mean like cross-generational encounter? Freedom of speech about sex is a glaring exception to the protections of the First Amendment, which is not even considered applicable to purely sexual statements. The anti-obscenity laws also form a part of group statutes that make almost all sexual commerce illegal. Sex law incorporates a very strong prohibition against making uh, against mixing sex and money, except via marriage. You got to put that little dig in there, right? So marriage is technically a form of prostitution when you're a weirdo leftist. In addition to the obscenity statutes, other laws impinging on sexual commerce include anti-prostitution laws, alcoholic beverage regulations, and ordinances governing the location and operation of quote adult businesses. Yeah, like maybe that you shouldn't put a quote adult business by a school. The sex industry and the gay, well, let's pause for a second because what do we have going on in 2022? We literally have sex toy companies partnering with schools to put curriculum in. And they, some of that curriculum involves showing sex toys that the sex toy company sells. So the sex, the the quote adult business is in the school, in these, some of these schools now. Huh. The sex industry, that's what queer theory has brought us from this particular complaint. The sex industry and the gay economy have both managed to circumvent some of this legislation, but that process has not been easy or simple. The underlying criminality of sex-oriented business keeps it marginal, underdeveloped, and distorted. Sex businesses can only operate in legal loopholes. This tends to keep investment down and to divert commercial activity toward the goal of staying out of jail rather than delivery of goods and services. It also renders sex workers more vulnerable to exploitation and bad working conditions. If sex commerce were legal, sex workers would be able to be would be more able to organize and agitate for higher pay, better conditions, greater control, and less stigma. You could have a prostitute's union, in other words. Whatever one thinks of the limitations of capitalist commerce, such as such an extreme exclusion from the market process would hardly be social acceptables, socially acceptable in other areas of activity. Now we're going to the communist, as my friend Jesse Kelly often likes to point out, the communist loves nothing more than to use your own principles against you. So let's invoke communism. Whatever one thinks of the limitations of, sorry, let's invoke capitalism. Your values have to be used against you. Whatever one thinks of the limitations of capitalist commerce, such an extreme exclusion from the market process would hardly be socially acceptable in any other area of activity. It's just a market issue. You're a market guy. Let us have sex shops in schools via the internet and curriculum. 2022. That's what you get 36 years later. Imagine, for example, sorry, 38 years later. Imagine, for example, that the exchange of money for medical care, pharmacological advice, or psychological counseling were illegal. Medical practice would take place in a much less satisfactory fashion if doctors, nurses, druggists, and therapists could be hauled off to jail at the whim of local, quote, health squads. 
but that is essentially the situation of prostitutes, sex workers, and sex entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, okay. So sex work and medicine are the same. That's the argument. And now we get it though. Ready? Guess what the next word is? Marx himself considered the capitalist market a revolutionary if limited force. The Marxist loves nothing more than to use your values against you. Even Marx understood that the capitalist market is a revolutionary force. It's just limited in its capacity, so we've got to be able to take it further. He argued that capitalism was progressive in its dissolution of pre-capitalist superstition, prejudice, and the bonds of traditional modes of life. Quote, hence the great civilizing influence of capital, its production of a state of society compared with which all earlier stages appear to be merely local progress and idolatry of nature, end quote, quoting Marx. Keeping sex from realizing the positive effects of the market economy hardly makes it socialist. Queer Marxism. The law is especially ferocious in maintaining the boundary between childhood, quote, innocence and, quote, adult sexuality. Oh, boy. I'm just going to do that again. The law is a spe we're complaining here. Remember, Gail is complaining here. The law is especially ferocious in maintaining the boundary between childhood, quote, innocence and, quote, adult sexuality. Rather than recognizing the sexuality of the young and attempting to provide for it in a caring and responsible manner, our culture denies and punishes erotic interest and activity by anyone under the local age of consent. The amount of law devoted to protecting young people from premature exposure to sexuality is breathtaking. Just... Just let that soak in. Let me remind you, this is where queer theory started. Queer theory didn't start with, hey, let's ask some questions and then arrive at minor attracted persons deserve to be treated as a marginalized minority. It started with minor attracted persons are a oppressed minority that deserves to be treated better. And we need a revolution in the entire sex uh, economy in order to figure that out. It started there. It started with the pedophiles. This is the first queer theory paper. The primary mechanism for ensuring the separation of sexual generations is age of consent laws, which, since she's cited Foucault several times, will remember Foucault hated the idea of age of consent laws. He voted, uh, he, he signed the petition, I should say, in 1977, a few, seven years before this paper came out, to completely abolish age of consent in France. It was 15 years old at the time, but that was apparently far too old. He wanted to get rid of it entirely. The primary mechanism, Gail Rubin tells us, for ensuring the separation of sexual generations is age of consent laws. These laws make no distinction. So you bring up this point, which has some basis in being reasonable to most people so that you can get people on the slope that you've lubed up to slip all the way down. These laws make no distinction between the most brutal rape and the most gentle romance. A 20-year-old convicted of sexual contact with a 17-year-old will face a severe sentence in virtually every state, regardless of the nature of the relationship. This is where we were talking in the previous episode about discernment around that one particular case being relevant. Within a few years of the magic line of the age of consent, discernment might be something worth bringing into, and laws could be written to account for that. 
Does that mean that we get rid of age of consent laws? Yes to the queer theorist. No to normal people. Nor, she says, are minors permitted access to, quote, adult sexuality and other forms. They are forbidden to see books, movies, or television in which sexuality is, quote, too graphically portrayed. It is, it is, uh, da, 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 da. It is legal for young people to see hideous depictions of violence, but not to see explicit pictures of genitalia. Sexually active young people are frequently incarcerated in juvenile homes or otherwise punished for their, quote, precocity. So kids are allowed to watch at certain ages certain amounts of violence, but they can't see porn. And this is a big problem to Gail Rubin. This is the kind of stuff queer theory has existed from the beginning to try to argue for. Adults who deviate too much from conventional standards of sexual conduct are often denied contact with the young, even their own. This is apparently a problem. You don't want to... Sex offenders are kept away from children, like in schools. How about that? What happens if you break that one down? Whoops. Groomer schools. Go look at libs of TikTok. Custody laws permit the state to steal the children of anyone whose erotic activities appear questionable to a judge presiding over family court matters. So... I guess the children did not belong to the state back in 1984 yet. Countless lesbians, gay men, prostitutes, swingers, sex workers, and, quote, promiscuous women have been declared unfit parents under such provisions. Members of the teaching professions. (laughs) This is a delicious pause right here, right? Fuck. Groomer schools. Yes, I did swear under my breath. Members of the teaching professions are closely monitored for signs of sexual misconduct. Well, not anymore, apparently. Thanks, Gail. If you wondered how groomer schools, how did we get here? James, how did we get here? Well, here we have the first queer theory paper by the first queer theorist openly complaining that it's a problem that members of the teaching professions are closely monitored for signs of sexual misconduct. In most states, certification laws require that teachers arrested for sex offenses lose their jobs and credentials. That's a problem, according to Gail Rubin, the first queer theorist. In most states, certification laws... Whoops, I already said that part. In some cases, a teacher may be fired merely because an unconventional lifestyle becomes known to school officials. Not anymore. They put it on TikTok and bring it into their classrooms because that that barrier got broken down and nobody wanted to play the discernment game. Every subsequent barrier had to be broken down too. Moral turpitude is one of the few legal grounds for revoking academic tenure. Apparently not anymore. Why? Because Gail Rubin started agitating for it in 1984, and eventually nobody was able to stop that. Or willing. The more influence one has over the next generation, the less latitude one is permitted in behavior and opinion. I agree with that, but Gail Rubin thinks it's a problem. The coercive power of the law ensures the transmission of conservative sexual values with these kinds of controls over parenting and teaching. It's a hell of a paragraph, isn't it? You want to rewind and listen to that one again. That's a hell of a paragraph. The only adult sexual behavior that is legal in every state is the placement of the penis in the vagina in wedlock. Consenting adults, uh, statutes, ameliorate this situation in fewer than half the states. Consenting adults, it should be hyphenated, statutes. So 
about half the states have leniency if the adults are consenting. But that's not minors. Most states impose severe criminal penalties on consensual sodomy, homosexual contact short of sodomy, adultery, seduction, and adult incest. Sodomy laws vary a great deal. In some states, they apply equally to homosexual and heterosexual partners, and regardless of marital status. Some state courts have ruled that married couples have the right to commit sodomy in private. Only homosexual sodomy is illegal in some states. Some sodomy statutes prohibit both anal sex and oral genital contact. In other states, sodomy applies only to anal penetration, and oral sex is covered under separate statutes. So the point of doing that paragraph, what we just read, is to say, look at this mishmash of laws. Obviously, there's no universal standard. Obviously, none of this makes sense. Therefore, people who are actually are talking about this honestly, the conscious Marxists, are the ones who need to take it over, give it to us. That's the point. Everybody with all their stupid conservative values, they're just making stuff up as they go. Luckily, we have the real study of the material conditions of history and the structural social conditions of history and the cultural conditions of history, as you've heard through this paper. So give us the power to decide and let's make it universal. We're seeing the exact same kind of thing argued about now with the, the Roe versus Wade decision coming from the Supreme Court and the fact that they don't want the states to be able to make their own decisions based on their own populations. This is like this weird Everybody has to be on the same standard, super collectivist, our way or and it's our way or the highway program that the leftists are always pushing. And if you don't do that, then your laws don't make any sense. So we need to get rid of them is the underlying message. Laws like these, she says, criminalize sexual behavior that is freely chosen and avidly sought. The ideology embodied in them reflects the value hierarchies discussed above. That is, some sex acts are considered to be so intrinsically vile that no one should be allowed under any circumstances to perform them. Yeah, like cross-generational encounters, or you mean pedophile by that. Yes, I agree. Or pedophilia, I should say. The fact that individuals consent to or even prefer them is taken to be additional evidence of depravity. Let's pause one second on a word here. Now, we can't read too much. I don't want to do this weird close reading business where I read something that's not there. The fact that individuals consent to blah, 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 but we've heard adult consent a couple of times in the past page or so. The fact that individuals consent to, not adults consent to, adult got erased here. The fact that individuals consent to or even prefer them is taken to be additional evidence of depravity. This system of sex law is similar to legalized racism. No, of course. State prohibition of same-sex contact, anal penetration, and oral sex make homosexuals a criminal group denied the privileges of full citizenship. With such laws, prosecution is persecution. Even when they are not as strictly enforced, as is usually the case, oh, there was a question earlier, how often are these laws actually enforced? Oh, apparently not usually. The members of criminalized sexual communities remain vulnerable to the possibility of arbitrary arrest or to periods in which they have become the objects of social panic. Now, I'm a big fan of decriminalizing nonsense laws that do assert arbitrary power. As a Tennessean, it is my duty constitutionally, uh, my state constitution, uh, ordered to resist the application of arbitrary power. And I agree, people shouldn't have to live in fear of arbitrary arrest. And so, yeah, having a law in the books that you just don't enforce is actually a bad practice. But most people agree with this now. Most of us have realized that we have a lot of laws on the books that mostly don't get enforced, which means they can be selectively enforced, which is arbitrary, which is tyranny, which is not appropriate, which is not becoming of the American ideal or experiment. 
possibility of arbitrary arrest, she says, or to periods in which they become the objects of social panic. When those occur, the laws are in place and the police action is swift. I agree that actually, and this is where they get you, you have to be careful, that you get sucked into, you get sucked in by this stuff. Like that's a totally valid point. And then it goes totally into the to toilet because it's defending stuff like uh, getting rid of um, statutory rape laws and child molestation, criminalization, and the criminalization of child porn. These, it's just very frustrating. Even sporadic enforcement serves to remind individuals that they are members of a subject population. The occasional arrest for sodomy, lewd behavior, solicitation, or oral sex keeps everyone else afraid, nervous, and circumspect. Again, that's a fair point that's getting used to leverage a unfair point, the typical Mott and Bailey game. The state also upholds the sexual hierarchy through bureaucratic regulation. Immigration policy still prohibits the admission of homosexuals and other sexual, quote, deviates into the United States. Military regulations bar homosexuals from serving in the armed forces. No longer true. The fact that gay people cannot legally marry, also no longer true, means that they cannot enjoy the same legal rights as heterosexuals in many matters, including inheritance, taxation, protection from testimony in court, and the acquisition of citizenship for foreign partners. I pause to point out the paper that I reviewed on Twitter that I mentioned earlier, which is a queer theory paper for preschoolers and fourth graders, actually is by a preschool teacher writing about fourth grade that she doesn't even teach. And in that, she pointed out that that creates, that this uh, gay people being able to marry creates homonormativity, where homosexuality is acceptable only when it's within certain normative bounds, like married monogamous couples, and therefore that's also not okay. And the normalization of homosexuality through making it normative like that is is also outside of the purview of what queer theory is aiming for. So the slope is slippery. We see from, you know, 1984, arguing, using, leveraging the uh, idea of marriage equality to the point where even through the 90s, marriage equality was something queer theorists fought against. These are but a few ways that the state reflects and maintains the social relations of sexuality. So we're going to frame this out in terms of Marxist framing. The law buttresses structures of power, codes of behavior, and forms of prejudice. At their worst, sex law and sex regulation are simply cultural apartheid. Although the legal apparatus of sex is staggering, most everyday social control is extra-legal. Less formal but very effective social sanctions are imposed on members of, quote, inferior sexual populations. In her marvelous ethnographic study of gay life in the 1960s, Esther Newton observed that the homosexual population was divided into what she called the, quote, overts and the, quote, coverts. Quote, the overts live their entire working lives within the context of the gay community. The coverts live their entire non-working lives within it, end quote, quoting Newton. At the time of Newton's study, the gay community provided far fewer jobs than it does now, and the non-gay work would almost completely, sorry, and the non-gay work world was almost completely intolerant of homosexuality. There were some fortunate individuals who could be openly gay and earn decent salaries, but the vast majority of homosexuals had to choose between honest poverty and the strain of maintaining a false identity. Though this situation has changed a great deal, discrimination against gay people is still rampant. For the bulk of the gay population, being out on the job is still impossible. Generally, the more important and higher paid the job, the less society will tolerate overt erotic deviance. 
So I want you to I want to frame this a bit because she's using gay, and in, especially in the current era, we understand the civil rights uh, success for gays and lesbians. But she's not limiting it to that. So what she's doing is she's again she's leveraging what the gays fought for, the civil rights that the gays fought for, in order to push the stuff that nobody defends except queer theorists and Marxists. But I pick back up. Um, it is, if it is difficult for gay people to find employment where they do not have to pretend, it is doubly and triply so for more exotically sexed individuals. See, we left. For, oh, let's use gay. Get the empathy flowing. Now it's even worse for, quote, more exotically sexed individuals. This is where I laugh. Sadomasochists leave their fetish clothes at home and know that they must be especially careful to conceal their real identities. An exposed pedophile would probably be stoned out of the office. Having to maintain such absolute secrecy is a considerable burden. Sadomasochists leave their fetish clothes at home. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> like, no shit. Don't wear that to work. Pedophiles would probably be stoned out of the office. So glad you're coming to the defense of pedophilia, Gail. Having to maintain such absolute secrecy is a considerable burden. Even those who are content to be secretive may be exposed by some accidental event. Individuals who are erotically unconventional risk being unemployable or unable to pursue their, their chosen careers. Now hold on. We've got gay on the one hand, and then we have people wearing their fetish clothes to the office on another hand, and then we have pedophiles on the other hand. And in this paragraph, Gail ten, uh, succeeds in leveling that completely. And in fact, saying that the further down that scale you get, the more oppressed you actually are. Everything that the gay civil rights movement worked for was being set up to be undermined, parasite undermined, a parasite latched on and stole, hijacked and ruined everything that was worked for there. The queer theory is the problem. It was not the gay agenda, as we heard about back in the day from the social conservatives. It was the queer agenda, and if we could have disambiguated then, we might have saved ourselves a lot of trouble, and we need to disambiguate now. Public officials and anyone who occupies a position of social consequence, Gail tells us, are especially vulnerable. A sex scandal is the surest method for hounding someone out of office or destroying a political career. The fact that important people are expected to conform to the strictest standards of erotic conduct discourages sex perverts of all kind from seeking such positions. I laughed pretty hard when I read that. The fact that important people have higher standards put on them is a problem, but sex perverts got me. The fact that important people are expected to conform to the strictest standards of erotic conduct discourages sex perverts of all kinds from seeking such positions. Instead, erotic dissidents are channeled into positions that have less impact on the mainstream of social activity and opinion, to which I thought, based, that's correct. Yes, they should. That's right. Very good. Okay. But that's what Gail's complaining about. That's what queer theory exists to undo. The expansion of the gay economy in the last decade has provided some employment alternatives and some relief from job discrimination against homosexuals. Back to the empathy. But most of the jobs provided by the gay economy are low status and low paying. 
Bartenders, bathhouse attendants, and disc jockeys are not bank officers and corporate executives. Empathy, 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 pathos, pathos, pathos. Many of the sexual migrants who flock to places like San Francisco are downwardly mobile. They face intense competition for choice positions. The influx of sexual migrants provides a pool of cheap and exploitable labor for many of the city's businesses, both gay and straight. Families play a crucial role in enforcing sexual conformity. Uh Uh-oh. Family bad. Hi, Marx. Much social pressure is brought to bear to deny erotic dissidents the comforts and resources that that families provide. Popular ideology holds that families are not supported to produce or harbor erotic nonconformity. Many families respond by trying to reform, punish, or exile sexually offending members. Many sexual migrants have been thrown out by their families, and many others are fleeing uh, from the threat of institutionalization. Any random collection of homosexuals, sex workers, or miscellaneous perverts, again, can provide heart-stopping stories of rejection and mistreatment by horrified families. Okay, any random collection of homosexuals, empathy, sex workers, or miscellaneous perverts, okay, perverts. Christmas is a great family holiday in the United States, and consequently, it's a communist loves to use what you value against you. Christmas is the great family holiday in the United States, and consequently, it is a time of considerable tension in the gay community. Half the inhabitants go off to their families of origin. Many of those who remain in the gay ghettos cannot do so and relive their anger and grief. In addition to economic penalties and strain on family relations, the stigma of erotic dissidents creates friction at all other levels of everyday life. The general public helps to penalize erotic nonconformity when, according to the values that they have been taught, that's all it is, the values that they've been taught, landlords refuse housing, neighbors call in the police, and hoodlums commit sanctioned battery. Gay bashing, yes. And then we start getting into things like prostitutes and pedophiles and perverts. Not to justify the battery, but... uh, some of these other things cause problems. Landlords probably have a decent vested interest in not having prostitute run a prostitution thing out of the, their property, for example. Um, the ideologies of erotic inferiority and sexual danger decrease the power of sex perverts and sex workers in social encounters of all kinds. They have less protection from unscrupulous or criminal behavior, less, less access to police protection, and less recourse to the courts. Maybe they should wear their leathers to court, and then the judge will... uh, Wait, I'm getting my pieces mixed up. Dealings with institutions and bureaucracies, hospitals, police, coroners, banks, public officials are more difficult. Yeah, if you show up at the bank and you're fetish leathers, people might be a little alarmed. Sex is a vector of oppression. In other words, we're going to look at sex in a Marxist way because we need new radical politics of sex, and that's why we're thinking sex. That's what this paper is about. Queer theory is queer Marxism. Gail Rubin, 1984. Thank you. The system of sexual oppression cuts across other modes of social inequality. You feel the, the rumblings of intersectionality coming into play, sorting out individuals and groups according to its own intrinsic dynamics. It is not reducible to or understandable in terms of class, race, ethnicity, or gender. Intersectionality is poking over the wall. Wealth, white skin, male gender, and ethnic privileges can mitigate the effects of sexual stratification. A rich white male pervert will generally be less affected than a poor black female pervert. But even the most 
privileged are not immune to sexual oppression. Some of the consequences of the system of sexual hierarchy are mere nuisances. Others are quite grave. In the most serious manifestations, the sexual system is a Kafkaesque nightmare in which unlucky victims become herds of human cattle, whose identification, surveillance, apprehension, treatment, incarceration, and punishment produce jobs and self-satisfaction for thousands of vice police, prison officials, psychiatrists, and social workers. Produce jobs and self-satisfaction for police, prison officials, psychiatrists, and social workers. What a demented view. But she's thinking like, oh, we're cleaning up the perverts off the street. We're cleaning up the prostitutes. We're getting rid of the pimps. Like, There's never this discussion that these things that are happening have downsides. There's just, oh yeah, people should just be able to do whatever they want. That'd be so great. We're going to liberate people's sexuality. We're going to liberate their, uh, which doesn't mean like, let's not be ridiculous. She appeals to let's not be ridiculous, but then comes back to repeatedly things like uh, pedophilia, cross-generational encounters, child pornography, exposing children to pornography, exposing children, getting rid of statutory rape law. I mean, she comes back to these things again and again and again. It's not like it just kind of like, oh, said it once, that's bad already. No, it's literally, it comes back to it again and again and again. And so we're going to stop here with the part of the essay. We'll do part three in, in, in another episode. But now we have more of a sense of a queer theory as it has evolved into 2016 from Professor Ward, that article about Professor Ward's uh, heterosexuality that apparently includes homosexuality for straight white men. But also we see how it's framed back against these ideas of Gail Rubin. We've also seen in from these ideas of Gail Rubin specific places where it's almost like you could see her like kind of cutting the the links and the in the chain link fence, keeping some of the big problems that we see right now in society, like grooming children like bringing sex toys and so on into schools, like drag queen story hour, like all of this kind of stuff. These are genuine problems. You can see where she's cutting the links of the fence that are keeping those things out, even in 1984 in this very first queer theory paper. And so we'll pick up with our exploration of Gail Rubin's Thinking Sex, the original queer theory paper, the first one, and another episode that wraps it up. And you can kind of already tell, you now know all this stuff that you're seeing has a root. That root is queer theory. Queer theory is queer Marxism. It's Marxism that is using a lot of Foucauldian postmodern thought in order to get around the idea of physical reality and to reshape the way that we're going to think. You can't categorize male and female anymore. You can't categorize straight and gay anymore. If you do, you cause all these harms and oppressions and you create a, the, the the discursive domain for a uh, regulatory regime that's going to cause violence of categorization to people, blah, 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 blah. And so this didn't just come out of the ground. They didn't just start groomer schools like a few years ago. The um, kind of genealogy I gave of it in the groomer school series, and in particular the first episode of the groomer school series that I did previously, um, didn't really dive at this level of depth into what it looks like on the ground where queer theory was getting started, where a new politics of sex that's explicitly Marxist, a Marxist engine dropped into this uh, idea of sex and sexuality um, that we see with queer theory, that we see being born with Gail Rubin. So the paper's a bit of a doozy. I'm glad you're along for the ride, and we will listen more to the rest of it next time. <laughs>